This is the Big Box PC Game Collectors Podcast for April 19th of 2015. Joining us today, we have Joel, KG, Paul, Wilhelm, Stuart, and Joe from the Origin Museum. On this episode, we have a very special guest, John Romero. John's an id Software and Ion Storm alumni, famous for Doom, Quake, Commander Keen, and many other famous PC games. But first we discuss whether we prefer playing our games on original hardware or using emulation such as DOSBox. I tend to side on the side of emulation myself only because of a lack of hardware and a lack of space. Um, I only have one PC going at the moment, and DOSBox is pretty much my only, and I, when we're talking about big box old games, we're pretty much talking about DOSBox is our emulator of choice, unless there's another one that I'm not aware of. Pretty much I'm a DOSBox guy if I want to play any of this stuff, so if it doesn't run in DOSBox, I guess I'm pretty much out of luck. So I'm sort of like on the fence, and that not on the fence, but I'll take a middle position. I want to use the original media of the games and play those whenever I can, but I don't believe that we need to use the original hardware for the whole machine. So my basic objective is to make an Uber machine that can run everything. As opposed to having like every single individual machine from yesteryear lined up in a row. And for the reasons that you gave, I mean, it's it's lack of space, but more, more, more than lack of space. I'd rather use my space to have more games than to have more hardware. So have the games, but have devices that are capable of playing the original media on my new my newest machine, essentially. That, that's my goal. There's something about what we're doing that is harder than what the console folks are doing. And I know that the console folks like their emulation, too. But they get bonuses from it, like save states and stuff. I collect the console stuff as well, and um, I have I'll prefer to play those on the original hardware, but they're so much more compact, and uh, I can pretty much hook them all up to the one television, right? Even the modern TVs, they still work. Um, we have a harder time, I, I think, because we have the the monitor issue, especially old school CRT monitors are big and bulky. The PCs typically weren't designed for looks, unless you're dealing with Apple hardware. Most of the time, they're really kind of ugly to have around. They they get yellow and nasty looking. I mean, it, it's tough. It would be, you know, I would pretty much have to have a a room by itself set up for this sort of stuff if I was to really get into the hardware side. But there's something to be said for the original hardware, you know? I mean, it's it's incredibly cool to me, anyway, to have that original hardware to go run it in its original format. What cracks me up the most is that while DOSBox emulates all this stuff incredibly well, I'm absolutely shocked at how well it handles some of the more complicated games from the mid-90s and things. But there's something to be said for that because uh, I know for something like Wing Commander 3, uh, now you play it in DOSBox and it plays extremely well and it plays great, but you miss out on the edge, the cutting-edge technology at the time. Uh, I agree, yes. Uh, there's nothing like uh, the um, original sensation of run the application, the game in the original platform. I mean, there's nothing that can replace the sensation when you you put the original floppy disk drive in there and you heard um, the, 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 the floppy read it, right, and run the software in the original 
speed, um, the original, um, even the CRTs also. I mean, you have all, all these LCD stuff that look fancy, but you cannot compare with the original sensation to see these games in these uh, little 14-inch CRT um, monitors when originally used to be designed. So I am not have a collector of these. I basically have one computer from any era. I mean, the 5050 original IBM, 5060, 5070, AT, some clones also. Um, definitely, definitely, I like my computer games collection, but I also like once in a while open my boxes and install these in the original computer and enjoy the sensation to running in the original systems, right? I think uh, when you have like this piece of hardware and uh, uh, you have this like uh, screen of, for, uh, for a turbo button, so when you press the turbo button, basically it will um, change the speed of your processor. And uh, when you when I, when I bought this machine uh, and I opened up the case, I found out that uh, the turbo isn't working at all. So basically, it isn't even connected to the to the motherboard. And what it does, it only basically changes uh, the number on the screen. And so I think the when you play on hardware, it it's it has some kind of uh, like it, it has some kind of a soul, I guess. So even if you turn on uh, your old computer with this huge button, and uh, your floppies make sounds like right in, at the startup, I think that's that kind of uh, brings you to the old era. Uh, so when you emulate uh, your games, basically uh, you, you don't feel like sucked into the old DOS era. Uh, and uh, what is, however, uh, pretty nice about emulating is uh, you can download your old games and uh, play them within a, a few minutes. And uh, what I find pretty interesting is I couldn't manage to run uh, several games on DOS, which were meant to be played on DOS, but I could only uh, manage to start them on a, on a DOS box. So that's pretty like like interesting, I guess. Yeah, I think uh, emulation has its own strength, but uh, if you want to play your game and you want to really enjoy it, then you probably have to take the old hardware and play it on, on your old machine. The biggest advantage you guys have is you have a five-and-a-quarter drive. <laughs> I still don't have one. Um, i got tons of discs. I don't even know if they work. I've got a three-and-a-half-inch drive here that's a USB drive that works, but um, five-and-a-quarter still eludes me. I wish someone would make a USB 5.4 inch drive. It will never happen, but I wish someone would. There's a board you can get that um, allows you to kind of hook up. But, uh, I haven't got one. I I've saw that. Actually it's had hundred bucks. Yeah, it is, and and the and the hardware isn't hugely well supported across various platforms. And uh, apparently, there's one good uh, good uh, piece uh, piece of copying software. Uh, copying software. Um, Good luck, Joel. At $100, that's mainly for nothing but the hardcore PC game collector. So it wouldn't, it wouldn't apply. Well, it's yeah, they sell it more. I think it's primarily designed with disk imaging in mind. Like businesses that have old information on five and a quarters, that's like their market. You know, like people that just have to get this data off by any means. I think we may have missed a joke. Sorry, Joe. No worries. We're humorless. Well, um... um so you don't you don't own any um, five and a quarter unit in home, and I, I know you have a plain a very interesting collection back in there. How you know if your games are still functional or, or it doesn't matter for you? I don't I don't know if they if they do or not. 
the way um, I play them is um, most of the time with the GOG versions, which you can just install. And if it's um, for archival purposes, I'll just burn it on a CD and stick it in the box. Um, I've got to say, the uh, uh, GOG versions, are, although they're great, and I, I do think emulation very much has its place. I'm most uh, I'm mostly gaming off this set all in one PC at, uh, in, in my room at the moment, although I've got other computers, both old and new. But uh, the GOG versions, for example, one thing I haven't compromised on when it comes to um, emulation is I have a real uh, Roland, S uh, Roland Sound Canvas. Wow. Hooked um, up to a modern PC, modern PC via this USB MIDI in out dongle. Um, yours for 11 euros off, uh, from some random eBay dealer in Hong Kong. But um, the thing with the GOG versions of games, um, sorry, that was the top of my head talking, uh, is that uh, often they're missing the crucial, uh, crucial installer files that allow you to change. Uh, uh, settings such as sound, uh, such as sound card and so on. GOG has decided what the optimal settings are for the version that they've forced into running as well as possible on a modern PC, and that doesn't allow very well for much divergent and retro hardware. For that reason, I've been trying to archive off images of my discs, um, which unfortunately, because some of them weren't stored all that well, I've had uh, mixed results with. But I too have a USB, have a USB uh, a floppy drive, and I've been using WinImage to pull images off. Um, although some, like some Sierra discs, have uh, phys uh, physical uh, physical copy protection that is act that actually prevents you from ripping 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 viable images from them, which is a little bit annoying. And I think that's one of the points where you get to the advantages of um, real hardware. I do most of my retro gaming via emulation because I'm lazy, but um, real hardware not only is sometimes more likely to work because, for example, even the latest development version of DOSBox has issues with loading multiple disk images in, se in series um, at times. Not all, not all CDs and not all disk images will, um, will, work, with will work with DOSBox. If you're, and, you know, it's fine if you've downloaded something from some abandoned website because, uh, because that's already um, sort of more primed and runnable, um, although it may have its own problems. But uh, yeah, the whole disk image DOS box problem is a good argument in favor of real hardware. And the other thing is, I, I'm a hardware nerd. I mean, for, for a long time, I was, I was uh, a pre predominantly a computer hardware reviewer. I can, I can build a PC in a, in a shockingly small amount of time. And I actively enjoy the process of restoring old, piece, old PCs, old consoles. Um, a large part of my interest in this hobby, although I love the games, is in the process of restoring these things and bringing them back to working order, making the game box, making the game boxes beautiful, making making archiving off the discs before before it's too late, getting that old console uh, uh, running, getting a uh, rebuilding that old PC. Um, There's no doubt that in my mind that the original hardware is very cool. I, mean, I, I think that's I would all acknowledge that. I, the nice thing about the hybrid approach I try to use is I do have the original disk drive, so I do get to hear that whirring and the and all that stuff, so get some of that experience. No, I think that, yeah, if it's a good emulation and you have, you know, the, the, using the original cartridge slash disk slash whatever, the experience is not appreciably different in my mind, at least, although the original hardware is extremely cool. But, but the I disagree. Thing, you know, it's particularly know, with monitors. But, but, the, but the other thing I want to say quickly is that Philosophically, I, I almost feel like I have to take this position because 
I don't want I want these games to be loved by lots of different people. Like, and I don't want to take a position that means that ninety nine point nine nine percent of the people in the world are never going to appreciate these games the way they're intended to be appreciated. Quote unquote. Yes, there is like a point like one percent difference that you'll get by having the original hardware, but by far you have what you need by just by having the software and maybe a couple of gadgets. That's I think monitors are kind of the sort of big elephant, a big, a big elephant in the room that we don't talk about that much. Because the reason stuff like, for example, the, re, uh, the remaster of Grim Fandango, its control system for being one reason, but the resolution issues be, uh, being, uh, being another. Playing old games on a modern screen, I know I feel this more than most people because I use a 2K screen more for me, but, see, but getting the pixels smeared across, uh, smeared across your, your screen or having to play in a tiny box I mean, even a crappy, uh, crappy, uh, crappy little t- um, 640 by, t- uh, by 1080 uh, LCD, LCD display monitor, a 45 uh, one, um, would uh, sorry, 43 um, would uh, do the trick. But the problem is, increasingly, we're using TVs and large monitors, and I think that actually robs more of the experience from emulated games than anything else. Um, if you, if you want the proper emulated games experience, you do need a piece of shit monitor sitting around somewhere, in my opinion. Having a 4x3, I use a widescreen monitor now, of course, like everyone does, and having a 4x3, those black bars on the side, I cannot, I can't even explain why that irritates me. It just does. It's just like, something about it not put on the screen is just like crappy, and I can't quite put my finger on it. I think you have a good point, KG, with the, with the monitor in terms of the resolutions. You're right, there is a difference between the original monitor and Stretching it in some way across a new monitor. No, I, I agree. I'll give you that point. Um, I am totally in favor of emulation, though. As I've said, I use, I use it a lot, and I think it's brilliant that we have it. Uh, whoever, the people who created DOSBox and ScumVM and so on are uh, saints in my book. Yeah, you know, I, that's one thing that which also comes to my mind is that sometimes the emulation ends up being better than the original hardware because... It can emulate stuff that you didn't have on the original hardware, like Roland is a good example. You have a Roland, but 99% of people have never had a Roland, and never will have a Roland. And on that emulation, you can get that stuff. I mean, like Space Quest Three in the beginning, aside from the Roland stuff, there's some, there's some Sound Blaster speak where he talks for a little bit, Roger Wilco. Remember back in the day, I had, I had a right setup, and I was able to hear it. And then a couple of years later, I tried to play it. I, I didn't hear it, and I forgot it existed. But part of that is actually amusing as well because with the emulation, Stuart's right. They do, they are able to emulate the various different types. However, the problem that you come up with is you get to pick up the problems from 25 years ago. I just literally this morning downloaded Ultima Underworld 1 from GOG.com because of the Underworld Ascendant uh, Kickstarter. I downloaded it and just booted it up and went, oh, I'll jump back into Underworld 1. And the sound emulation is probably set currently to Roland, but my card just goes nuts when it plays it and the music sounds horrible. And I was fiddling with trying to turn it back to Sound Blaster compatibility when I had to go do some things. So I never really got to finish that, but I was all ready to start digging into DOSBox's stuff and changing the Sound Blaster settings, which I love doing, so that I could hear it in a, in, in a usable format where, where it wouldn't get irritating. And these were the same things that were irritating people in 1993. 
uh, I spent a solid day messing with um, sound card emulation in DOSBox. I, um, I was playing Ultima 7, and um, Ultima 7's like sweet spot is definitely an MT32 because that's what it was written for. And, well, um, Month does you a lot of favors there because you've got you've got DOSBox support for Month now. Yeah. So, uh, but you know, we, I'll preface that with MT32 emulation isn't isn't entirely legal. Um, <laughs> but this, the flip side of that is, is buying those things like you've got KG on eBay is not cheap still anymore. They're they're still pretty expensive. At least the ones I saw were. Well, here, here's another example of what I was saying. So the, the all the original Sierra games after the first King's Quest or whatever were in an AGI adventure game interpreter. And they all had basically support only for the PC speaker. There was no Sound Blaster support, um, originally at least, until SCI came out. But um, for the Candy 1000, it had, a, it had a three channel sound as opposed to like. And actually, all those games were written with a more advanced soundtrack. If you had the Candy 1000, you had the Candy Sound hardware, it would, it would play that more advanced soundtrack, even though the Candy 1000 was. A PC compatible machine in other respects. I never had any, any idea that was the case until years and years later. I got some either AGI interpreter or DOS box or what, and I started playing some of these old games again. I was like, wow, this is amazing. This sounds so much better than it used to sound for me in my original hardware. That's true because it's based in the IBM PC uh, original hardware. That the final thing possibly could have. It's much simpler. Let me add something about this experience. It's not, as I said, not only about to running in the original hardware configuration. It's also the way to connect uh, the games with their specific era. For example, if I turn on my Windows 8, Windows 7 computer and run my emulator and uh, want to run in Queen Quest, for example, right? And I have a friend of mine that says, what is this? Let me show you. So I run in my emulation and stuff. says, what is this thing? I'm on this little characters with very low resolution and whole stuff. I says, let me tell you a little bit more about this thing. It's not only, only the original media and stuff. Let me show you the original hardware. Let me show you the original experience so we can connect the game with the original hardware, the original experience. So it's, a, it's original technology that's running in that time. So he can have a perception about the whole thing, not only the, the game with the computer and also the technologies that was running in that time. It's, it's, that's what I really question me, right? Besides the game, is is to, to to be able to offer the whole experience, the, the game stuff, the vintage stuff with the vintage hardware and the whole thing. This is why you you living in 1984, for example, this is what you have in your hands. This is the original computer, this is the original DAS, this is the original game, and that's the original sensation. So I think nothing can replace that. There's a, there's some truth to that because um, the meta game when I was a child was uh, getting the games to run. Now, the, the biggest offender for me was Falcon 3.0, which is, if I recall, um, seven in a minute because it was it was another thing because you couldn't use expanded memory managers with that game. <laughs> so getting Ultima 7 to run with mouse, sound, uh, you know, the, the youngsters of today's age will never know what it's like to rearrange items in a config.sys file in order to get things optimally loaded into expanded memory um, uh, in order because 
getting things run sound, sound card drivers took up a lot of memory and you had what 640k to deal with back then <laughs> you got you got your sound blasters wanting to use the same interrupt channel as your printer port does you know so I was constantly <laughs> we had jumpers and we liked it that way <laughs> I once got a Roland and a sound blaster to run on the same machine producing different parts of sound in an old origin game it took me months Interrupt five for my sound cards because the stupid prayer port wanted to use interrupt seven. So uh, these freaking games that would not allow you to change the the interrupt port from seven down to five would irritate the crap out of me back then. Um, and there was very few of them, but they were they were out there. And then we and then we'd all configure our machines and get IRQ seven to work with our sound cards. And then the industry basically changed everything to five. So we, the forerunners, we had to go change everything in order to meet their stupid technical specs. These damn kids with their hair in their clothes. Yeah. <laughs> these, rotten, these rotten young kids and they're not having to deal with this stuff. I mean, when was the last time Who anyone remembers with an interrupt channel or a direct memory access? You know, no one, no one even knows what those are anymore, man. We're like a dying breed. Black Hunley used to be a good thing, huh? Yeah, Interrupt 7 MA Channel 1 was what Sound Blaster wanted to use. And right. then he changed it to 505 or 515. That's what it was. Sorry. And here, lady, here, gentlemen, is an example of a boot disc from the wild. Yeah, and you pretty much had to have... Well, I was able to get Ultima 7 to run. But that was... Ultima 7 was the worst because just because they used their own freaking memory manager. I swear Martian Dreams was worse than Ultima 7. Anybody's uh, mentioned it before, but John Romero's here. <laughs> yeah, we're trying to be cool. We're trying. I know you're trying, but I'm failing miserably. I'm like squealing like a little girl with my mute button on. <laughs> yeah, I think I think you better a better a sort of anecdote something here, John, before Joe explodes. Yeah. I uh, I sold a lot of shirts last night. If anyone was paying attention on Facebook, yeah, you sold them real quick too. I couldn't believe it. I saw them like an hour after they all closed. I'm sorry. <laughs> The, the, uh, I sold a, a 1992 Wolfenstein 3D uh, shirt, and it was not even, it was seconds. Like, I put it up, and it was seconds later it was gone. And it was a brand new shirt that had never been worn. Um, but it had, you know, Wolfenstein 3D on the front with BJ Blaskowitz blasting through a wall with a with a chain gun, and then, uh, you know, it's basically on my on my web, on my Facebook page, you can see the all of the stuff that I put up. There's probably, I haven't even checked eBay, but there might be one or two shirts um, from my MMO or whatever that are left. But uh, but I um, I have a whole bunch of really old stuff too. Like, And I know Jerry Jewell, who was the guy who started Sirius, and also Nasser Jabelli is a friend of mine who wrote most of the stuff that they did the first year, first couple of years. Um, and I'm trying to do a, <clears throat> trying to do an interview with Nasser before long. Um, has anyone heard of Soft Tape, the company? I've heard of them, but I don't. I don't have anything from them. So they're the very first computer game company in existence. They sold the very first computer games in 1978. So Joe uh, Gary Koffler is the guy who started that company, 
and uh, he's a friend of mine, and I don't know if you guys know who Bob Bishop was, but he wrote the first four high-resolution graphics games for personal computers uh, in 1978 on the Apple II. And um, anyway, the company Softape, and so the first four games were, were made by um, Bob Bishop, and they were published through Softape. And I don't know if you guys have heard of Soft Talk, but Soft Talk was uh, um, probably the best, the best computer magazine I've ever, I've ever read, and it came from Soft Tape. Soft Tape had a newsletter called Soft Talk, and then Margot Comstock saw the name of the newsletter and wanted it, so she she um, bought the newsletter, the name of the newsletter, and started Soft Talk magazine, and then Soft Disk. Uh, was the company that I went to work for later, um, and Softdisk came from Softalk. So Softape, Softalk, Softdisk, <laughs> which lived until like 1995. Uh, uh, Bob Bishop was one of the pioneers in the industry, and and uh, at this year's GDC, he was, um, you know, they made a, they had a really cool uh, memorial for him on screen, and um, and. Uh, Luckily, Gary Koffler called me basically the day that he found out that Bob's family was going to go and take all of his stuff and throw it in the dumpster because they didn't know what to do with it. So <laughs> so I went with my wife. We drove four and a half hours to his house and took everything that we could, including a black Apple II Plus, which was a prototype for the Hewlett Packard Pluses. Whoa! Yeah, it's pretty cool. And, um, and so we... Uh, Got all of Bob's stuff, including the Apple glasses, you know, with the, the sunglasses that are all tinted to different colors, the different Apple II colors, like that. Cool. And uh, those glasses were made by Waz and only given out to friends of his. Um, so, anyway, I have like, I have a ton of these kinds of games, like really old uh, Ziploc bag games. So, Not this bad. is. That I'm familiar with. 1982, Cannonball Blitz by Olaf Lubeck. Oh, but man, in 1982, I was only four years old, so... Oh, yeah, there's so much... This this is um, this is one of the coolest things they used to do all the time. It says machine language, or written in assembly. <laughs> <laughs> all of the boxes... I know, it's not a big box, so it doesn't count, except it's the industry that oh, created boxes. It counts. <laughs> it's totally <laughs> Trust me, it counts. Um, Were you friends with Nasser back in the day, or did you become friends with him? I became friends with him back in uh, in the nineties, not back in the day. <laughs> Star Cruiser. Is it oh, like no, I played that. I played that one. Very cool. Yeah, I don't know if you guys have seen it, but it says Synergistic Software, and Star Cruiser is made by Sirius Software because that's the company that Nasser and Jerry Jewell started. But before they built up their distribution network, they went through Synergistic Software. And then Synergistic put it out with their name on it until uh, until Sirius could get all the distribution and they could put stuff out under their own name. Nice of them to leave Nasser's name on it. Yeah. Yeah, I have several Nasser signed things. Uh, you know Dr. Cat, right? You have to know Dr. Cat. So yeah. here's the Caverns of Fry tag. Very cool. Love that, that artwork. Very cool. Signed by Dr. Cat. John, do you just have piles and piles of stuff lying around, or do you yeah, have? Yeah, I have. I have a box full. 
of Ziploc bag games from the um, first few years of the 80s and the late 70s. And anyway, yeah, so I have, uh, I have a guy, basically I have this guy who, um, an assessor come over who knows the entire history of, of everything in the computer game industry, and he saw the box and he was just flipping out because he has not seen most of these games. This is like a, an hey, it's not a computer games. I didn't know that there was people that did that sort of thing. Oh yeah, yeah. They work for the. Computer. We should probably send them around to Joe's place. There's there's uh, the Strong Museum of Play in New York, uh, in Rochester, New York, and the Computer History Museum here in Mountain View. Um, so this we, is. We definitely need the name of that assessor. I've been looking for a guy. Oh, cool! Yeah, this guy. This guy is such a massive collector. You you would not believe his story. At least get him in a group so he can come. Probably fake when he sees Joe's Kilrathy heads. I have not tried the discs, but I don't need to because they're all on Asimov anyway. Um, you guys ever heard of Snakebite? You know, there's, there's a guy recently who listed on eBay tons of serious games, like in the last two weeks, and they were selling for like, I, w- I want to say, 200 to $250 a pop, like easily. Yeah, yeah. I, was, Amazon, so. I was looking at those. I don't know who that was. I don't think it was Chuck Somerville because Chuck is the guy who wrote Snakebite. He's a friend of mine too. Um, but somebody who's a serious collector, I saw that. I was like, "Yep, that's that's a good price for that stuff." Yeah. <laughs> this is uh, another friend of mine, Eric Knopper, at this uh, Orbitron, and it was um, Eric Knopper. His dad, Paul, was the general manager at Sirius, and uh, when Nasser Jabelli left Sirius to form Jabelli Software, Phil and Eric both left with him. That was in 1982, I believe. Oh, another copy. <laughs> for Apple, right? Do you have uh, a full collection of serious software, John? No, no. They did. They made a lot of games. Like I don't have Wavy Navy and and um, Blade of Blackpool and stuff. But I, so you'd be up for trades, right? I'm probably not trading these games. <laughs> no, but I have Wavy Navy. Oh, you do? Yes, I do. Oh, I'll trade that, yeah. I'll trade it for, like, an Orbitron or something. I already, all... I already have Orbitron. I was planning on giving these all to you, so I'll trade them for an autograph. Blader Black <laughs> is on eBay right now, but it's a box version, so it might be a later release. So my watch. Big boxes. Um, have you ever heard of this game? Escape from Arcturus, yeah. This is real early from Synergistic. And I love how copyrights weren't really all that enforced. There's an X-Wing right on the front of the package. <laughs> uh, hey, computer gaming, it was a niche hobby. Who cares, right? Yeah, Eric wrote this one. It's called Cops and Robbers. That is the I best remember, I remember 1981 going into a computer store and seeing this hanging on the wall and was like, wow, that looks really interesting. Those are Apple games or PC games? These are all Apple II. All Apple II, okay. Before the PC existed, the Apple II made an industry for it. The PC was design was copied from the Apple. So this is um, EasyDraw, which is the basis for most of Sirius Software's games. It was written by Nasser Jabelli and is a set of routines to draw fonts on the screen and do various bitmap graphics and stuff. So this was the foundation of Sirius. I love the days when they sold their applications that they used to make the games as well. Oh, yeah. Well, the thing is, this was Jerry Jules, uh, Nasser Jabelli walked into a computer land 
where Jerry Jewell was working and showed him what he was writing, which was Easy Draw, and he got super excited about it. It was like, oh my God, we got to go into business. So they started started the company immediately, and he took whatever NASA wrote, which was the tools to make games, and sold that first while Nasser started making the games. And the first games that Nasser did, um, let me see if I have them here. Uh, oh, no. I have the master discs for Exit from Jabelli Software. Cool. Yeah, Neptune from Jabelli. Um, Zenith is another one here. Why does he feel bad? Huh? <laughs> He's got cooler stuff than I do. <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't you expect it? He's a little closer to these people than we are. Yeah, I guess I should have expected it. Uh, Joe, I don't think you're really in a position to sort of go commenting about how, you know, your cool stuff is relatively not cool, Mr. I have EA's back catalog. This is the Three Mile Island uh, by Muse Software. So I assume that was very timely because that was probably right after the meltdown? Um, yeah, yeah, they did that back then. <laughs> You know, it's like, oh, something happened. Let's let's make a game about it. Like, right. Imagine if we started making games about current disasters. Well, like, uh, Choplifter was a Iranian hostage rescue, uh, Cabble Spy, you know, all these Cold War games. Um, I wouldn't give a shit back then. <laughs> anyone remember Cyborg from Sentient? Yes. I, I have a copy of that for the IBM, which I didn't think existed. That's an Apple, right? 1981. It was made on the Apple. Yeah. <laughs> it was made, but Michael Berlin did it on the Apple II before anything got ported to the PC. Suppose the, suppose the PC version doesn't even work. It has, like, a bug that causes it to not even start up. <laughs> wow. Does anyone remember Bolo? Bolo was the first game to use the A-Star algorithm. Um... It was a. Uh, it was based on a. It was a based on a set of books called the Dynachrome Brigade, and um, it was a giant space. You know, big scrolling uh, area that you you were flying around in, and you're trying to destroy these bases that were out in space. But all these bad dudes are are going through space, and there's mazes everywhere, kind of in space. It's kind of weird. And so you're going around, you know, through these mazes and walls and stuff, and these things are A-starring ahead of you and behind you and everything. It's like, and, and it looks, it's crazy to see it on a on a 8-bit microcomputer kind of game versus a big PC game, you know, because it's doing the kind of pathfinding that you, that you expect of big games, but it did it first in 1982, I believe, this came out. Um, and the guy who wrote it, um, it just says by Elvin Software. It doesn't say the name of the person. It doesn't say the name of the person because the guy worked at Microsoft, and he wrote an Apple II game. But his his name is Jim Lane. Um, now, John, do you have all this stuff documented? Uh, it's no, not yet. <laughs> somebody's got to interview you. Somebody's got to write all this stuff down. Somebody's got to make the time to go do this because you know. No disrespect, but you get hit by a truck and it's all gone. Yeah, there's it's funny. Yeah, it's not history, man. It's like all the stuff is out there, but um, I don't know. Apple II history stuff hasn't been in one place. I don't know if you guys have seen Russell De Maria's book High Score. Yeah. Yes. So he's putting out a new edition. I'm doing the proofing on it, and this is like the third edition. 
and it actually has like you know it's mostly Apple II stuff, and it's the beginning of the industry, and so EA and you know automated simulations and all that stuff is in there, um, and but not not all the stories I guess that I've found out. So John, yeah. can I ask a question? You're friends with Nasser. Like, why is he not active anymore? Like, he he was so prolific. He produced so many games for Sirius, and then in his own company, and then like sort of what you know, that's it. You don't hear from him anymore. So so this is hilarious. None of you none of you came to the 1998 Apple II reunion, right? So. Was that the one that <laughs> so, I went to? Huh? Was that the one that I went to? And uh, at the. Uh, Malibu. You went to Malibu. That was John Garcia, the the guy who founded Nova Logic, but had made uh, Zaxxon on the Apple II for DataSoft. The funny thing is, he actually didn't make a Zaxxon. His name is on it, but he was just the manager, and he took the programmer's name off and put his own name on it. Oh my God. <laughs> I can't even believe it. But but um, we were at John Garcia's house, and that was you know six years after the first Apple II reunion, but Nasser came to the first Apple II reunion. So Waz came the first time as well. Bob Bishop was there. Uh, Dan Gorland, who wrote Choplifter. Doug Smith, who wrote Loadrunner. You know, you know, Alan Margo, who created Soft Talk. Doug Carlston, who created Broderbun. Like, everybody was there. Chuck Somerville, Mark Trammell, Eric Knopp, Eric Hammond, who wrote One-on-One. I mean, like everybody that had made the Apple II industry was there, and uh, but everybody only cared if Nasser was there. <laughs> they didn't actually even care that Waz was there. They cared that Nasser was there because he was more mysterious. And so what happened was everybody came and everybody got to see Nasser and talk to him. But nobody, they're just like, "What have you been doing? Like, you know, you you left Sirius in 1982. You did your your." Uh, Trebelli software, and then the, the whole crash happened, and then he disappeared. And so um, what happened is Nasser actually made more money in his company than he did at Sirius. And when the crash happened, he just like got out of the got out of it for a while. It took it took him. Um, he closed. I think he closed Trebelli software in '83. Or 84, I think it was 83. It was real short, and um, he basically went on a trip around the world. He just went all over the place. He's um, an Iranian programmer, but he grew up in Sacramento, and so he went all over the world. And uh, he came back in 86, so he was gone for about two and a half years, probably three years. When he came back, he went to his friend Doug Carlson, who owned Broderbun, which is kind of funny. He didn't go to Sirius. He didn't go to Jerry Jewell. He went, he went to Doug. And he had never published anything through Broderbun, but he was friends with Doug Carlson. And he asked Doug, so what's going on? Like, I want to get back into the game biz. What should I do? Because I know how things change. It's pretty quick. And Doug said, well, there's this thing. There's, there was a big crash. Killed everything. Uh, consoles were dead. But this company called Nintendo came and they rescued it, and so, so he's like, okay, so I need to program this Nintendo thing. And and Doug said, yeah. So let me introduce you to some companies that um, that are doing this now, like pretty early. And so he flew with Nasser to Japan, and he went to, um, I believe he went to Nintendo. 
but then he went to Square. And at Square, the people there were like, uh, they, they were asking him if he knew who NASA was. <laughs> and and he's like, he's like, what do you mean, Nasser? Nasser? He's like, NASA de Belly, you know, the, the way that they say it. And he's like, that's me. And they're like, oh, my God, because... They, they, the person who was there said that he was an Apple II programmer, and they're asking him if he knew who Nasser was, because he's the most famous Apple II programmer. And, um, and so he said, no, that's me. And one thing leads to another, and Nasser moves to Japan and starts working at Square. And he writes 3D World Runner, Rad Racer, and then he makes Final Fantasy. Whoa! And then he fi makes Final Fantasy II, and then he makes Final Fantasy III, and then he takes a break for a little bit, and then he makes Secret of Mana. Wow. I had no um, idea. So Squaresoft owes him everything, basically, because they were about made, to shut... Squaresoft was about to shut down before Final Fantasy 1 came out. Final Fantasy 1 was like their final hurrah. Like, yep. they were just, well, you know, in a big fashion. They owe him everything. If he made Final Fantasy 1, there would not be a Squaresoft right now. Yeah, exactly. So if it wasn't for Nasser, Square would be gone. He was the sole coder. They, they had two programmers, and they left because they knew the place was going down, so they took off as he came in. Well, what's interesting, though, is I've seen several uh, making-of videos and the Icons show that used to be on the G4 or whatever yeah. it was called back then. They never yeah. mentioned him. I don't know that they ever mentioned him by name ever in they any of that stuff. So, so Nasser is like the prototypical you know, uh, shadowy figure. <laughs> um, he doesn't... He's very humble, and he doesn't really like to... He's not into computers at all. So after 1993, he's finished with using a computer to make anything. Like, he's done. And he's been done since then. So it's been 22 years he's not done anything on a computer. He was more interested in TV, doing some other stuff. So where's he now? So he's living in... Rancho Cordova slash Gold River, Sacramento. I have his phone number. I know his address and everything. Um, and he's just kind of retired because he made $10 million from Final Fantasy and retired. <laughs> so he had a great deal because they basically gave him an outrageous royalty because they were done anyway. Yeah, they didn't, right? know, they didn't even think they were going to be in business anymore. Yeah, so they're like, yeah, you can have X percent of all the money because we're done. So he did it. He pulled it out, and he won. And so um, with Secret of Mana, you know, him and Hironobu uh, Sakaguchi are really good friends, or they were really good friends. Hironobu Sakaguchi was like the executive producer over all of the games of Square. So the whole Final Fantasy series, he designed it. You know, he designed all the Final Fantasies, and he worked closely with Nasser to make those first three and Secret of Mana. And Hironobu... They were having a party probably about three years ago. They were having a square anniversary, and Hironobu asked me if I knew where Nasser was so he could invite him to the um, to the party that's in Hawaii. So I got in touch with Nasser. I called him up and and uh, told him the party was happening, and you know he couldn't make it because it's like this big long flight to Hawaii, and I guess he was too busy. But um, we just went to GDC in March, uh, the Game Developers Conference. And this year, Hironobu Sakaguchi got a Lifetime Achievement Award. And uh, and so they made a really hilarious video about, like, how he came up, how he saved Square. <laughs> it's this awesome video. 
of course they don't mention Nasha because like he is the guy who is the head of all the st- all the game making at Square, and Nasser was a guy who coded this stuff for him. Um, and Nasser just can't be contacted for any video stuff anyway, so it's really tough to get him on video. But I actually have probably about an hour long interview that I did with them back in 1998 on video. I haven't put it out yet, but it'll be it'll be up at some point. I'm getting better at Final Cut Pro. <laughs> Um, but anyway, yeah. So he, <clears throat> so he basically um, got this got this award, and um, and then we got to take some pictures with him and and say hi. And I basically told him that I tried to contact Nasser to come and surprise him at the at the award thing, but uh, but Nasser was not going to be able to make it because he just had surgery on his knee. It's a great story. Thanks for sharing that. I still like it. Surprised though, somebody who did so much, like he just like walks away and is like, "I'm done with computers." I'm like doubly glad you told that story because I'm all or of all Final Fantasy series. I've got an entire collection of those games, and um, I, had, I had no idea that he was even involved in them because any literature, any videos you see, any history that you see about those games, I don't think I've ever seen one that they even mentioned him ever. Yeah. It's created a direct link between sort of uh, the Amer- the wave of American game development and the development of the JRPG, which is quite have that sort of that sort of bridge in historical terms. I think. Yeah. Um, so JRPGs started because of wizardry, and um, they went to Japan, and then they were influenced in Japan by wizardry, and then they made Japanese versions of the RPG, the JRPG. So. Um, because there were no there were no RPGs that early when Wizardry came out in 1981. Thanks for listening to the Big Box PC Game Collectors podcast. You can find us on Facebook. You can also watch the original video version of this podcast on our YouTube channel, which includes the show and tell segments. Can you guys hear me, or am I blagging? Yeah, we can hear you now. Okay. You see me too? No. Really? No, we can't see you, but that might not be a bad thing.